0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. And when the sixtieth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, le masavagtan. Which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last he said truly this man was the son of God let us pray oh Lord as we have
1: sung these our four songs this morning claiming your glory declaring your love for us as displayed on the cross. I do ask now that as we look to your word in the book of Mark, Lord, that you would fill us with understanding, that you would reveal to us your truth and your will that would then fuel our worship. And so, God, I ask that you would fill us with truth now. I'd be able to communicate that well and faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to a passage that we've actually been building to for some time. In actuality, you could probably say not only the book of Mark has been building to this, but also the rest of the New Testament would be building towards this and coming from this. The whole Old Testament would be building towards this. The entirety of Scripture would lead us to this climactic event. Not only that, we've been getting hints in the Gospels and also in our study of Mark, that this event was coming jesus's birth was heralded with this announcement that he will save his people from his sins how would he do that john the baptist would declare jesus as the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world how could he take away the sins of the world In Mark 8, 9, and 10, Jesus on three different occasions has told his disciples that this event was coming. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. How will Jesus lay down his life? At the Last Supper, Jesus would hand his disciples the bread and the wine. Tell them that these will now symbolize his body and his blood, broken and and given for us. Broken and poured out? What could this mean. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would pray that the cup of wrath would pass from him. What would be this cup of wrath? And so Mark and the other gospel writers have been leading us to the event that we study today, the death of Jesus on the cross. So in one way, Mark's description of Jesus' death is both simple and short. He only uses a few verses to describe Jesus' death. But it is in no way simplistic. We know better. In the event, we find the climax of the redemptive story that God has been working from eternity past. In it, we find the defining moment of human history, the great turning point The most terrible event and at the same time the most glorious event in human history. Thousands of books have been written about this event and many more will be written. Why? Because truly this forms the center of our Christian gospel. And so today may God help us to grasp a bit of the truth that is here in this passage. The depth and the breadth of what Mark is describing in this way. In Mark chapter 15 verses 33 through 39, we see four occurrences at the death of Jesus which deepen our understanding of the gospel and should prompt our worship to God. The first point in verse 33, the preceding darkness. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. As we learned from the preceding passage in Mark chapter 15 that Gideon preached a few weeks ago. Jesus was put on the cross at about nine in the morning, or the third hour, and so at the sixth hour it would be noon, midday. It would be the brightest part of the day, and yet darkness will fall on the land for the next three hours. It's about 3 p.m. Clearly, because it was the middle of the day, it would be sunny out like it is today. We know that this wasn't just the result of clouds. It wasn't a natural eclipse. It truly was a supernatural blotting out of the light of the sun. We don't actually know how far this darkness extended. Did it extend beyond Judea or Israel? But we do know that it was recognized by everyone. This is the power of God. This is something out of the normal. It wasn't just a demonstration of God's power that he could blot out the sun. As the sky becomes dark, this Jewish audience would have realized This this is familiar. There are times in the Old Testament where this is talked about. I want to reference two things. First, from the book of Amos, going back to the prophets. Specifically, Amos chapter 8 is a chapter that speaks of a day of bitter mourning for Israel. Why? Because God is judging them for their idolatry and injustice in the land. Amos chapter 8 verses 9 and 10 says this. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. And so as the sun is darkened for these three hours as Jesus is hanging on the cross... We know that the people witnessing it would think back to some of these words from Amos. Grief and mourning, lamentation, bitterness, and judgment, all directly from God. But there's an even greater association that the Jews would have had with this darkness that fell on the land. Going back to the book of Exodus and Passover. You'll remember that God sent ten miraculous plagues on Egypt as a warning as a judgment on the nation of Egypt because of the refusal, Pharaoh's refusal to release Israel from slavery. Do you remember what the ninth plague was? It was darkness. Described in Exodus chapter 10 verses 21 through 23 like this. A darkness that could be felt. Pitch darkness. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three whole days. It was darkness sent as a form of judgment and warning. It would have invoked great fear and wonder. The people would have said, this God of the the Jews, he must be powerful if he can blot out the light of the sun, this most powerful heavenly being, also the symbol of our most powerful God. It not only demonstrated the power of God, but even more, it immediately preceded The more serious judgment and sign that was coming in the final plague, which was the Passover. Now, Passover's significance in Jewish history and religious life cannot be overstated. What was the Passover in Exodus 12? It was the final plague. It was the death of the firstborn. God would strike down all the firstborn of Egypt, but he made a way for the firstborn of Israel to be spared a lamb or a goat would die in their place. Their blood would be painted on the doorposts of the home and God would pass over that home and spare those inside. So Jesus is identified by the New Testament writers from the Gospels all the way to Revelation as the Lamb of God, likened to that of Passover. John 1, verse 29, John the Baptist declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. You were ransomed, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Very clearly. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So do you see the association with the darkness? Like the three days of darkness that fell upon Egypt preceding the Passover, we have three hours of darkness preceding Jesus' death. And the Passover in which a lamb would die in the place of the firstborn of Israel, just as Jesus, the Lamb of God, would die in the place of sinners deserving of death, His blood covering their sin. Now to make the association all the more poignant, Jesus' death is happening during the Passover feast in Jerusalem. Right, there's a lot more that we could look at in terms of Jesus being the Lamb of God and likening Him to the Passover. But it is very clear that the darkness that precedes Jesus' death is identifying Him as the Passover Lamb. It's identifying Him as a substitute for someone else. We're going to get to that idea of propitiation in a bit, um, this idea of substitution. But Jesus truly is the Passover lamb of God, the one who would die in our place. Point number two, second occurrence, is the Messiah's cry in verses 34 through 37. While Jesus was hanging on the cross, the four gospels actually describe seven things that he said while he was there. But Mark only records one. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. It's translated for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't just come up with these words on his own. He's actually quoting the first verse of Psalm chapter 22, which I want to turn our attention to for a bit. The, The 22nd Psalm is labeled by some commentators as the fifth gospel because it so clearly references these messianic occurrences. The New Testament quotes or alludes to it 15 times. And just in reference to the death of Christ, there are four clear connections. The first one that Jesus quotes, verse 1 here, verses 6 and 7 describe the mocking of Jesus and those who would say, Aha, you trusted in God, but will God not come and save you now? Verse 16 For the dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers encompass me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18. They divide my garments by casting lots. And so Jesus is quoting this psalm, which so clearly prophesied the circumstances that would surround his death. It may be easy to misunderstand Jesus' words here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does Jesus ask the question? Does he know, does he not know why he's dying? Why he's being forsaken? Does this not present Jesus as despairing? Has he lost his trust in God's faithfulness? Isn't that a sin? But in order to answer these questions and understand this more fully, first, I want to take a look at what Jesus was actually going through. And second, we'll take a look further at the context of Psalm 22. We cannot rush past the reality of Jesus' agony. It was unimaginably terrible. Wayne Grudem helps us understand the anguish of the cross in a few ways. and I'm going to uh, highlight these a bit. Four ways that Jesus experienced anguish on the cross. The first was the obvious physical pain. It's difficult to even imagine... Jesus has been flogged. A crown of thorns has been pushed down onto his head. He's had to carry the cross to Golgotha. He's had nails driven through his hands and his feet. He's been struggling to breathe for these six hours on the cross. It is physical torture in the extreme. Second, the pain of bearing our sin. Jesus is God. He is holy. Sin is totally against his nature. And yet, all the sins of those who would be saved are now falling upon him. As one commentator writes, all that he hated most deeply was poured out fully upon him. Thirdly, the pain of loneliness. Jesus had just been abandoned by his disciples. But now, even more, he was deprived of the closeness that he had experienced with God from eternity past. The source of his deepest joy and peace and comfort, his face is gone. He's facing the weight of sin by himself. Another commentator writes this, Never before had anything come between him and the Father, but now the sin of the world separates them. And fourth. Bearing the wrath of God. As Jesus bore all of that sin, God poured out his wrath on Jesus. You know, false teachers throughout church history have often said that wrath is not a fitting characteristic of God. But the Bible makes very clear that God hates sin. And that in his righteousness, he judges and punishes sin. It is a terrible wrath. Romans chapter 2 verse 8, describes it as wrath and fury. 2 Thessalonians verses 1, chapter 1, verses 7-9, through nine describes the eternal judgment of God for those who do not know Him and disobey His word as flaming fire, vengeance, punishment, eternal destruction away from the presence of God. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross, He's receiving this furious wrath of God that was reserved for all the elect who would believe in him. And so we see in this physical pain, this pain of bearing sin, this pain of loneliness, this pain of bearing the wrath of God, we see his anguish. Almost more terrible that he knew it was coming. But as one commentator has written, the reality was more terrible than the prospect. Now, all of this was meant for us as Jesus calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we would be remiss in thinking that Jesus' cry is one of complete despair, one with no hope, one that had lost his faith in God's goodness. That would be sin. What's helpful here is that we understand the context of the rest of the psalm. If you're to read the whole of Psalm 22, you'll see that it breaks down really into two sections. The first being one of lament, which verse 1 comes from. And the second, that of thanksgiving and praise. So while David is experiencing this deep sorrow, he's wondering why God is allowing pain. He's wondering why he's allowing people to mock him, not knowing how long it will continue. In the midst of this anguish, David will write in verse 26 that the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. And so David recalled the faithfulness of God so that in the midst of the trial, he could trust and cling to hope in him. And so as we hear Jesus ask why he's being forsaken, we know that his words are not only those of misery and loneliness, but of hope and the faithfulness of God. Other points in the gospel help support this. I referenced Mark chapter 8 and 9 and 10 when he's telling the disciples that he is going to die. Each of those times he also told them that he would rise from the dead. In John chapter 14 and 16 and 17, Jesus knew that he was leaving the world so that he could go to the Father. Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us that Jesus endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him. And so as we hear Jesus' cry pointing us back to David's cry in Psalm chapter 22 verse 1. We understand it was not a, a cry purely of despair nor was it hopeless. In Luke 23 verse 46 we learn that Jesus says, Father into your hands I commit my spirit. It was a cry of anguish but it was filled with faith. Knowing that God was there. Knowing that God would bring deliverance. Knowing that resurrection and glory awaited. I think of anything in this passage as I've been studying the last couple of weeks. If anything encourages me most, it's actually this cry of Jesus. Why am I forsaken? Especially in the midst of this COVID pandemic. I want to give you three encouragements that I've felt in these last couple of weeks. First, our Savior has experienced suffering to a point that we can barely imagine. And yet, if our Savior has suffered, we will know that suffering will be a part of our lives as well. Jesus didn't exempt himself from it. Instead, he took on its fullest measure. Hebrews 4.15 says that we have a high priest who knows our temptations and our struggles and our suffering. And so we have a Savior who can empathize with us. We should not be surprised when it comes to us as well. And isn't it more bearable to face suffering when we know that it will be coming, when we know that our Savior has walked through it as well? Second, and though we may face suffering in this life, As believers, we will never face the eternal wrath of God because Jesus has taken it for us. Death for the believer does not lead to the wrath of God. It leads to perfect fellowship with God through Christ. And thus we do not fear death. Romans 8 verse 1, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. How do we exercise faith in these truths during this very trying time? I want to read this twice to you. We recognize that our eternal destiny does not include the wrath of God, for that has fallen on Christ. Instead, we have the hope and peace of an eternal inheritance with God. I'm going to read that again. We recognize that our eternal destiny does not include the wrath of God, for that has fallen on Christ. Instead, we have the hope and peace of an eternal inheritance with God. A couple of years ago, I was uh, in the hospital in South Africa for several weeks quite rare um, and serious disease called sleeping sickness. Uh, There were some very difficult moments in that time. The possibility of death, treatment didn't go well. I can tell you that this truth that I've just read to you twice was the bedrock upon which I could base my peace and my hope. No matter what happened, whether I was recovered, whether I died, I would be going to glory why? Because Jesus had borne the wrath from me. Even this morning, as Gideon was texting us as elders about the death of Maui's brother, both of his messages were filled with encouragement. As we sent him our condolences, he said, we are comforted by the fact that he knew his master." And how can we know God? Through Christ, through his death on the cross. Thirdly, one more encouragement. Third, in the cross, we're given a model of how we should walk through suffering. Like David and like Jesus, we will suffer, we will experience great pain. And we can struggle to understand why God would allow it to come to us. With the reality of COVID, this is very much present in our hearts and minds, isn't it? There's a temptation to feel anxious, to feel fearful. We might be experiencing the grief of loss, even today. And yet we can express these things to God. But the truth is that we must not despair. We must not give up hope. We must trust in God's faithfulness. As His people, we are fully prepared to walk through these trials with hope and joy and peace because of the assurance that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 35 through 37. The people hear Jesus' cry on the cross and they misunderstand what he's trying to say. They think that he's trying to call Elijah. Now there's a, a bit of discrepancy between some of the commentators. Some believe that uh, their comments... Oh, He's waiting for Elijah, let's get him some wine. That they were sincere, that they actually just mistook Jesus' Eloi, Eloi as Elijah. That they were actually trying to give comfort to Jesus, or help Jesus, waiting sincerely for Elijah to come and help the Messiah. But the other side would be that they were actually mocking him. This would fit with the context of what Gideon preached a few weeks ago, when we see these multiple groups... Mocking Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. Instead it would be sarcastic. Oh, he's waiting for Elijah, let's see if he comes. As another form of mocking. It's hard to say definitively what their intentions were, but these bystanders, they didn't understand what was happening. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. They completely missed it. As so many people do, as they see the cross of Christ even today. Verse 37, Mark very briefly describes Jesus' death. He says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Mark and Luke describe Jesus' death this same way, while Matthew and John say that Jesus gave up his spirit. Remember that we've been seeing throughout the entire book of Mark it's very evident in the other gospels as well that Jesus's life was not taken from him he gave himself up to it John 10 18 says that no one takes my life from me for I lay it down of my own accord so though Jesus was very much subject to the will of God he was not subject to the will of man even now Jesus is not taken by death these people are not taking his life from him Jesus is deciding when he would die, breathing his last, giving up his spirit, when he knew that all was accomplished. Let's move on to the the third occurrence. The first one being the darkness that preceded. The second, Jesus' cry on the cross. Third, the curtain is torn. The curtain torn in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There were two curtains in the temple, one separating the outer courtyard from the holy place, and one separating the holy place from the holy of holies. From my reading of various commentaries, it seems most likely that it was the inner curtain that was torn. In both the Old Testament tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem, the holy of holies was the place that God dwelt. But it was off limits, completely restricted access the curtain, as one commentator says, was the physical barrier that both represented and enforced the separation of the holy presence of the enthroned Yahweh from the priests and the people that they represented. Now, there's only one exception every year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. It's described in Leviticus chapter 16, an annual celebration for Israel. The high priest would have to make a sin offering for himself to purify himself. And then a goat would be killed as a sacrifice for the nation. The high priest would take the goat's blood and he would sprinkle it in the Holy of Holies. And then after that, the sins of Israel would be symbolically passed on to a second goat. The high priest would lay his hands on its head and then send it off into the wilderness. Right, the sins of Israel would be put onto this goat and it would become sin in the place of the people. This elaborate ceremony was a recognition of God's holiness, of the sinfulness of Israel, of the need for a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people in order to maintain their relationship with God. This continued sinfulness and guilt made the Day of Atonement necessary every year. It had to be repeated. And so access to God and His holiness was limited to one day a year, to only the high priest. But the great thing is that the the Day of Atonement was always provisional. It wasn't meant to be the final word. It was temporary. It was meant to point forward to a time when this would no longer be necessary. Hebrews chapter 9 helps us understand that when Jesus died as the Passover Lamb, as the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, as the ultimate sacrifice bearing the wrath of God on our behalf, That the curtain was torn and we can now have access to God. This tearing of the curtain in no way changed the holiness of God. It no way changed our our sinfulness as people. But now access to God was not through a sacrificial ceremony on the day of atonement. But through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 3.23 tells us that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. What does this word propitiation mean? It's a sacrifice that averts wrath by making payment for sin and canceling guilt. And so, in this passage, it is very helpful for us to see Jesus' identification with both the Passover Lamb, the Day of Atonement, both help us see these Old Testament links to Jesus' death. It also helps us understand this important theological or doctrinal truth of penal substitutionary atonement. What that means is that Christ's death on the cross paid a penalty a punishment for our sin. Christ was substituted in our place and suffered in our place. And this work, atoned for, satisfied, paid the price for our sin so that we could be reconciled to God. So just as the Passover lamb would die in the place of the firstborn of Israel, just as the goat would die, and be sent off into the wilderness, as the sin, as the representation of sin for the nation of Israel, so Jesus would die here in Mark chapter 15 in the place of those who would believe in him in order to grant us access to the holy of holies and to fellowship with a holy God. And so for us as believers, Christ's death for our sins, the curtain no longer separates us from fellowship with God no longer separated from him by a curtain of sin we now as hebrews 10:19 says we approach god with confidence to enter the holy place our relationship with god is not restricted access it's as a son and a daughter to a father intimate unrestricted unfettered because of christ's death on the cross our prayers are not addressed to a distant being But to Abba, Father, because of Christ's death on our behalf, this is what's been accomplished for us. And so we see the first occurrence, the darkness which precedes. We see the second, Jesus' cry on the cross. The third, the curtain is torn. And the fourth, the centurion's profession. Verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. In Mark 1, verse 1, Mark writes this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, As we've been going through the whole book over these last couple of years, we've seen how Mark has been making this very much evident. Jesus is distinct. He's different. His teaching is different. His miracles, his foreknowledge, his wisdom. Everyone who hears him, they're baffled. They don't know what to do with him. But nowhere else in the book have we heard a person confess that Jesus is the Son of God. There have been some professions. In Mark chapter 1 verse 11, a voice from heaven says, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Peter, in Mark chapter 8, confesses, you are the Christ. In Mark 14, verse 61, the high priest poses a question. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And yet by witnessing Jesus' death, this Gentile centurion makes the profession that is most appropriate. Truly, this man was the son of God. How did he come to this conclusion? Ultimately, it was God's revelation to him. Remember that this centurion is a veteran soldier, a commander of a hundred soldiers in the Roman army. He would have witnessed and probably have been a part of many crucifixions. But the fact is that this one was different. Perhaps he had seen or heard Jesus before. Maybe he had been witness to the trial. He would have seen the sign above Jesus' head, the king of the Jews. He would have heard the people mocking. He would have seen the darkness. And he is with Jesus in his last moments. All of this somehow convinced him that Jesus was the Son of God. And we don't know exactly what that meant to him, but we do know he was exactly right. Jesus is the Son of God. What does that mean? Most fully it means that Jesus is God. John 1 verse 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you were here when we were in the series on Colossians, we read in Colossians 1 15, He is the image of the invisible God. And verse 19, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And though difficult to understand how God the Father and God the Son are one and yet distinct, This beautiful truth is very much central to our Christian faith. The other side of this that helps deepen our understanding of what was happening here on the cross is to understand the depth of his death, what it meant, and should fuel our worship. Jesus is God. He's deserving of all praise and glory and honor. He is eternal in his existence. He's the creator of all things, even the men who are crucifying him on the cross. He is the Lord of life. And yet he would humble himself. Like Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 says, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And well, this should baffle our minds. It would baffle us not to confuse us, but to produce wonder. As we sang earlier, the wondrous cross is not just wondrous because the man died on it. It's wondrous because the Son of God died on it. His divine nature, His privilege, His worth, His glory was laid down for us. So as we look at these seven verses, there are... Implications that cannot be exhausted in a sermon on one Sunday morning. And there is so much deep theology here to be explored, but I, I want to give just a few application points as I close. The first one, we must recognize the larger redemptive story that is at work here. I don't know if you remember back in December, the beginning of Advent, Gideon preached a message from Genesis chapter 3 about the necessity of redemption, the fall of humankind that separated us from God. And yet, even then, God was beginning, he was planting the seed of a redemptive plan that he had already put into motion. That redemptive plan would come through a family, it was going to be imaged at Passover, it was going to be foreshadowed by the Day of Atonement. It would be written about in the Psalms and prophesied by God's messengers in the Old Testament. And so as we see Jesus' death, we understand it as the culmination of this work of God from eternity past. But the story is not over. We are a part of it. And we are participating in it. And we see that God is still working, affecting what was accomplished at the death of Christ For people yet to know Him and yet to believe in Him as we wait for His second coming. That's the first one. We need to recognize the larger redemptive story that is at work. Secondly, we turn to God in humble worship. That was part of my thesis statement at the beginning that a deeper understanding of the gospel would, in turn, drive us towards worship. But this worship is first of all characterized in humility. We understand that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. We understand that it is by no merit of ours. It is by no work that we have done. But by grace through faith in Christ. It is worship in that we sing songs like we've been singing this morning. Recognizing that Jesus bore the wrath on the cross. But worship ultimately is not just songs. It is our lives that honor him. We are meant to live pursuing holiness because as First 1 Peter 1.18 says, that we should be holy because we know the great price that was paid for us, the precious blood of Christ. Galatians 2.20 says that we have died with Christ. It's no longer we that live, but Christ who lives in us. Romans chapter 6 even takes this symbol of our baptism, going down into the water, representing our death with Christ, our death to the slavery of sin. And so we must worship God by submitting ourselves to him, by living holy lives. Third, 1 John chapter 3 verse 16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone who has the world's goods sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so as we see Jesus laying his life down for us on the cross, the apostles the early church will encourage us to then do what to follow his example to lay our lives down in sacrificial service to one another i want to encourage you to be thinking about how you can sacrificially love and serve someone even this week and lastly we share the good news with others the death of Christ is central to our faith, and thus it is central to sharing the gospel with other people. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians fifteen three, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And we're going to get to the resurrection in Mark chapter 16 very soon. But the gospel must first pass through the cross. And if you're listening to this sermon. And you're realizing that you haven't understood the depth and weight of your sin. Or what it cost Jesus on the cross. That he would pay the penalty for your sin. that You've never believed in the good news. Then I would encourage you. To repent of your sin trust that Jesus' death on the cross in mark 15 was for you as well believe in his resurrection and follow him into newness of life so as we've looked at mark chapter 15 these seven verses describing the occurrences of the de- uh, uh, that surround the death of Jesus on the cross the darkness that preceded his death his messianic cry, the curtain torn, and the centurion's profession, that we would understand the gospel more fully and that our lives would be characterized more fully by worship to God through Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord, we cannot read past... Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39, taking for granted what happened here. Lord, I thank you for Mark recording these occurrences, these details about the death of Christ so that we could more fully understand what it meant, its significance, the implications for our own lives, God, and I pray that we would not miss it today. It can be the easiest Sunday school answer for children. Lord, how are we saved? Because Jesus died for us on the cross. And yet we would spend the rest of eternity understanding what this means. Help us not to put it aside quickly. Help us to meditate upon it and to think well on it. Lord, and that you would change our hearts with the Holy Spirit to be more like Christ because of it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.